Welcome to Creative Income, a podcast that focuses on making a living in the creative space. Whether you're an actor, filmmaker, musician, painter, or anything that doesn't fit the nine to five mold, there is value for you here. I'm Lars Lindstrom. Let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Creative Income. I, of course, am your host, Lars Lindstrom. How are we doing? I uh, I was on set this week, thankfully. I finally did a commercial project, really fun project, actually. Um, looking, um, we were in one of those Hollywood mansions, you know, where you've got the uh, view of downtown Los Angeles in the background, and there was beautiful popcorn clouds. It was a gorgeous day, and I brought enough lighting power that we were able to expose inside while maintaining that detail in the windows. Anyway, if you're not a cinematographer, I'm, I'm boring the crap out of you, and that's okay. But uh, welcome back. I'm happy you're here. Um, we have a great episode. Ilya, of course, uh, Ilya Friedman is the owner of Hot Rod Camera. So if you know anything about um, Hot Rod Camera, you'll know that it's a boutique, professional uh, lighting camera house, um, not house, but uh, but retail store in Los Angeles. Um, that's where I get most of my high-end lenses, camera equipment. It's just nice to be able to go into a physical space, know the people there, uh, be able to call them or send them an email and get actual responses from human beings. So it's been a really great experience for me uh, throughout my career. Um, he was kind enough to sit down and talk about his journey um, through being an AC and a camera technician to creating, um, right when the DSLR movement, the boom started to happen, he created the first Micro Four Thirds or EF mount to PL mount so you could put cinema lenses on smaller prosumer cameras or uh, consumer cameras. So um, fantastic to have him on. He's a wealth of knowledge. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy the episode as much as I did. So here we go. Oh, I lost my voice last week, so I'm still a little bit raspy. But, oh, uh, no. I mean, you're talking to me. You can hear me, so that's, yeah, that's you, good news. Yeah, you, you sound uh, okay to me. But, uh, do I sound I don't, cool? Do I sound grungy? Uh, I, I wasn't going to say grungy, but you do sound like, uh, yeah, maybe you were sort of like a... Uh, Keanu Reeves, sort of like, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, like a yeah, like, salt water got to my I was gonna say, sort of like point break, okay, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of a kind of thing going on. So, <laughs> well, cool. right. hopefully, hopefully, it's not too distracting. No, not, not, not at all. Yeah, perfect. Um, thank you for doing this and inviting me to your space. Thank you for having me. This, this is, is super cool. I haven't been up here before. Um, I, I, I want to uh, start kind of not necessarily at the beginning, but I want to, I want to figure out why it made sense for you to go from a technician, very much a camera technician, to start a retail store. Yeah. So, well, talk to me about the early beginnings, kind of, kind of your just a just a taste of what you you uh, how you got into the industry, and then how you yeah how you morphed. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's a very circuitous route to get from from A to to B to where I am right now. Uh-huh. Um, started off. Extremely humbly, started off as a production assistant, started mm. off uh, camera PA, uh, slowly worked my way up sort of through the years, eventually to uh, AC, operator DP, spent most of my sort of freelance life as an AC. That was the bulk of it. Um, I was in a car accident on the 110 freeway uh, in, I want to say, like, 98, and I uh, got rear-ended really bad by some guy who... Um, I, then I went to the emergency room and the doctor said, hey, you're really lucky, you got whiplash, you should uh, not lift anything heavy. And of course, at that time, I was the first AC on a Mario Van Peoples movie and we were shooting on Panavision platinum cameras on gearheads and it was, ones. Yeah, it, was, it was just massive. Everything, just everything was 100, huge. 100 pound things to move all the time. Yeah. It, it's exactly what it was. Yeah. And 
he was like, as long as you're lifting heavy stuff, you're never gonna get better. You need to take six months Ooh. and lift nothing. Like lift nothing heavier than a paperclip. So it caused me to sort mm. of do this, like I'm, I'm you know, in my mid twenties at this point, I'd only ever worked crew, I'd only ever really worked in production. And so having to sort of reorientate my life then to do something else for six months caused me to really be, you know, reflect on, on how I spent my days day to day. I'd recently gotten married. Uh, my wife and I had plans of buying a house, and prior to this accident, it was like my schedule was so unpredictable. You know, you, when you work yeah. freelance, you don't know when your day's going to start, when it's going to end, where you're going to be. You know, she had a pretty easy nine to five job. I, well, I shouldn't say easy. She had a nine to five job that had pretty set hours, but if I was working nights somewhere, it's like she knew I came home because, like, during the day, the bed had been slept in, there were dirty dishes in the sink, but really we weren't seeing each other. So during that sort of recuperation time, uh, I really got to take priorities in my life and figure out, take, take stock of where I was at and decide what I wanted to do or how I was gonna make changes so that I could have a better work-life balance because production world is, is tough. I, um, had you, had, you had kids at this point? Or? No, no kids at this point. Yeah, so uh -huh. uh, I had a buddy who worked at CAA, the creative artist agency, yeah. and he said, hey, I can get you a desk job tomorrow. You don't have to be in the mailroom. Come do this for six months. <laughs> you don't have to be in the mailroom. And I uh -huh. said, okay. So I, I, I ended up working at this, uh, I ended up working in business affairs on a desk, working for an agent who was a lawyer, and uh, discovered really quick that this was a side of the industry that was that was that had a whole different level of stresses and things that were... Uh, not exactly, uh, not exactly my favorite. I'll just say that it, sure. it, it, it wasn't for me. And then, uh, can you? Can yeah. Why? Okay. I'm just curious. I mean, I, you don't have to like call anybody out or anything. I'm just. What What didn't you love about it? Okay, so quite often, not always. Mm -hmm. When you work on a crew, there's a wonderful camaraderie that people are working towards the same goal. That everyone wants to make the day. Everyone wants to get it done. Like. At least a good a good crew is like that. When yeah. you're working with you know your buddies and your friends who have an excellent work ethic, there is an idea of getting the job done, and it, it's a blue collar job. It's like mm -hmm. a lot of the work on set is is physically demanding. You have to be mentally engaged. You have to make sure that you know it may not always be safety first, but it's probably safety third. You know you you have to be very very conscientious of all the things that's going on. Working inside. Uh, you know, white collar job working in in, in CAA was uh, I want to say soul crushing in a different sort of way. It was it was soul crushing in that I was surrounded by people who are affectionately known as climbers, people who are like at the same level of me, but willing to kind of do whatever they could to get ahead to try to get. And so there was people working crazy hours. The hours are, are, are bad as a freelancer. I would say the hours for an assistant working in an agency are, are pretty similar. The difference is you're not lifting heavy stuff all the time. You're, you're answering the phone and you're dealing with big personalities and, you know, spoiled children, adult spoiled children, I should say. Mm -hmm. And um, I did not want to get sucked into this sort of like rat race of going that way. And so I got a phone call. It was probably in, I don't know, maybe... Uh, the late 98, uh, it, was, it was winter. It was either late 98 or early 99 for the Crow Part 3, which was shooting nights in Utah in the middle of winter. Fun. And I was, I, I had spent enough time 
uh, I felt healthy. I didn't feel like I had to be at this desk job anymore. So I, I took the job, I burnt the bridge with CAA and I immediately like flew to Utah and started to, to do this job where I was doing crash cams, uh, you know, stunt, all this sort of stuff. And it was interesting. After having a little bit of time away from the business, or at least from, from crew work, uh-huh. uh, I got perspective that my heart wasn't really in this anymore. I'd, do, I'd done some DP work. Hmm. I'd done some things for, you know, I'd done national commercials for like well, Office like, Depot. I feel like but, all overnights in the middle of the winter in Utah will do that. To yeah, it was, it, was definitely, it was definitely kind of a thing. Cause, yeah. um, and it, it's interesting. So like a, uh, a good friend and client of Hot Rides still to this day, uh, Joe Sattel, was, mm. uh, was also on the same, was on The Crow with me. And uh, that is, was really my sort of like turning point where I was falling out of love with what I was doing. So having having six months off, going and doing this last job, and it was kind of like it wasn't it wasn't an easy job. There was a couple of close calls that happened on that too. With like mm-hmm. uh, there was a, a stunt we were doing where a stuntman was supposed to crash through a windshield of a of a Corvette, and the camera I was on was uh, you know looking straight down on it, and this cable, the steel cable, snapped that uh, during a. a a, a, a rehearsal and the Corvette went like speeding off into, you know, almost into the street and that cable whizzed right past my head and I was like, Whoa. yeah, I was like, uh, yeah. And you know, of course it should have been all kinds of like warnings too. It's, it was a crow movie, but, um, <laughs> oh my gosh. so, so when that job was done, Whoa. it was kind of like, wow, there's, there's things that are kind of pushing me out of what I'm doing and I'm not minding these pushes. I'm not minding these like these sort of, you know, in the, uh, you know, in, in philosophy, they talk about the garden of forking paths of like all the different ways that your life can go, like, you know, your free will, what, what your mm. choices are. I kind of felt like I kept getting these nudges that, you know, the freelance world, while it was great, sometimes great, it was wonderful, but when it was bad, it was horrid. Yeah. Having some sort of stability and finding something where I felt like I could use the skills that I was really good at, because I was always very technically minded. I had a lot of people contacting me for um, car mounts and uh, explosion cams and all kinds of different sorts of things. I, I knew how to disassemble Panavision cameras and Airflex cameras and all kinds of stuff. And then suddenly kind of like realizing that I, I love the clockwork, I love the mechanics, I love the technical aspects of all of this, but then all the other sort of stuff that goes along with it, like the, the hours and the uncertainty, just wasn't feeling as congruent with the rest of my life. So uh, when that job wrapped, uh, a few weeks later, I got a call uh, to go work in a very small camera rental company that was the first camera rental house in Los Angeles to have the Sony F900, which was a 24-frame HD camera. And that was actually really interesting to me. And the uh, sort of like number two guy there who, like it was a very small company. It was like a two person company Mm -hmm. and the number two guy left. And so the number one guy said like, hey, you know, come in, you can learn this camera, you know, this is gonna be the the new thing. And it was really interesting because I didn't know, everything that I'd done was film. It was all film, it was all based around the concepts of film. Uh, I knew about exposing film. I didn't know anything really about video, but I learned a lot of stuff really fast. And it was really interesting. That was the first time I started meeting uh, DPs in LA who were very interested in digital technology and who were interested in sort of like the direction of things were going. And uh, in a short period of time, we really grew that department into sort of a player and we were doing uh, national television shows, network shows, cable shows. And did, did, Was there any kind of uh, idea or inkling on, on the ground at that time that this was gonna be the future? Uh, was the, I, I'm just curious what the climate was. You know, were, were people looking at this stuff going, there's just no way. 
because at the time I the it's like 2000 2001 yeah the F 100 I mean I, I remember the camera but it's like I don't remember it producing great images compared to the 35 mm compared to everything yeah. else that existed it was great yes but um, no compared to 35 millimeter film it had way less dynamic range it had way less apparent resolution yeah. uh, there was questions about the workflow but uh, I think that that was the first time that people started to realize you know the writings on the wall because hmm. Film stock uh, technology wasn't advancing at a very particularly quick pace, but digital technology and sensor technology was advancing pretty quickly. Yeah. So, um, still photography was already pretty much digital at this point. Still I mean, photography was, was, but it was yeah. it was uh, there was a lot of debate of was the best digital cameras matching what the what film could do, uh -huh. and the answer most of the time was no. No, so. Yeah. Um, I got headhunted from that small rental house to go work then at the largest rental house in the country at that time by, by pieces of gear. They had over a million pieces of gear and mm -hmm. controlled about 75% of primetime television. What was the market, what company? It's a company called Wexler. Okay, and yeah. Wexler uh -huh. uh, was very big. They imploded years after I left, yeah. but, um, which is, is, not, is not totally surprising. The founder <laughs> sold the company okay. and um, the new people who came in weren't able to keep doing what what the what the original magic of the team was that mm. that, that grew it, but um, it, it was really interesting for me because as much as I thought I knew about stuff when I went there, it was again like leveling up. I I then got to work around all these incredibly brilliant people in the special projects uh, department, which was responsible for doing all kinds of cutting edge stuff that people really hadn't done before. Shows like uh, Fear Factor, The Amazing Race for my clients, a lot of mm -hmm. Mark, Mark Burnett productions. And we were taking uh, video straight from a camera into a compressor system and then wirelessly sending it from location in Los Feliz to downtown Los Angeles, bouncing it off of two different buildings, all wirelessly, so executives and producers at CBS Television City in Hollywood could be watching live what was happening. It was on the original Teradek. It, it was original Teradek, <laughs> but we were we were not going just like uh, you know uh, a thousand feet. feet no, going, we were yeah. go, we were going like several miles. Oh so, and uh, and it was went to a web browser, and people could watch it, and people could log and transcribe and, and all that stuff. Well. So that was a really interesting job, and I learned a ton. But uh, the burnout was real there, mm -hmm. and uh, I I quit that job not having any idea what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I had been, a company called Dalsa, which was making the first ever 4K digital cinema camera, reached out to me a couple times when I was at Wexler, telling me, hey, your name's on this short list. People keep saying that we should talk to you. And I said, it's a big HD camera. I'm really not interested. Well, after I was unemployed, they called me one more time. Mm. And uh, Why'd you quit your job before you had something lined up? My wife and I have a really good relationship with, uh, with the industry, and we didn't have any kids at that time. And... At various points, we've worked jobs that we were unsatisfied with, and as long as the other person was stable, we were always like, "Don't worry about it. I'll I'll cover you for uh, the period of time until we can, you know, get to equilibrium again." Yeah. And um, so sometimes uh, I would be the tech stock where I would be having an uncertain <laughs> thing, and she would have a stable job. And other times, uh, you know, it would be the reverse. Sure. So uh, so this was one of those times where she had a really stable job working for a company. Things are going really well. And so I was like, she's she actually it was her idea. She said, "This job's making you sick. I wish you just I wish you just leave." And huh. so like literally that same day, I wrote my letter. No of way. Yeah, I wrote my oh, letter man. of resignation, and it was like, if that's not love, I don't know what it is. Well, it was yeah. it was really true though, because like you know. It hadn't been vocalized, but I'd been thinking it for months. And, yeah. uh, you know, I had clients like 
American Idol, and so you think you can dance, and mm-hmm. all these, you know, you know all, all these different, uh, you know, reality shows that uh, sometimes the engineers and people involved were very savvy and very smart, and sometimes not. And it was like the stress level from some of the companies that you worked with was extremely high, and it, all the shit would slide downhill. It would always became blame the rental house, blame the rental house for everything. Oh man, and uh, that's true. If if you screw up. Was something, and by I say screw up, I mean through no fault of your own. A piece if, of equipment is faulty. A, a, a yeah. piece of equipment fails. You, there might be someone in your kitchen later explaining how you've ruined their life and how you're responsible for everything. And that is the thing about Did that happened. This no. is, that sounds like a story. It sounds like it's, someone actually went to your kitchen, but the, yeah, it's yeah. it's happened to other people. <laughs> I've had the phone call. They weren't actually in my kitchen, but my phone call took place in the kitchen. So oh, it's yeah, brutal. Bridget, yeah, and, it's brutal. Like two o'clock in the morning, you're just getting screamed at by. No fault of your own. No fault. Yeah. Of, no fault. You know, but electronic stuff does fail. That's sure. just that completely a reality. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when uh, when I answered the phone this last time from Dalsa, and the guy who was running the the the, uh, the local office, which was right across the street from from Panavision, basically said to me, you know, Ilya, you say it's you keep saying HD. It's not HD. This is 4K. So you don't know what the you know what the fuck you're talking about. Yeah. It's like why don't you come in here, see our full dog and pony. If you're really not interested after that, then I'll, I won't bother you anymore. I won't. And 4K was probably not even a, a word at this point. Right? I didn't. Under, I thought that 4K was just like. A, I mean, the camera was huge, and I thought it was just you know fancier HD. I didn't really know anything about it. Sure. But when I went in there, and holy crap, it was like a sea change. It was like uh, understanding what they were doing from whole cloth. From like they actually make the sensor. They made all the stuff that went around it. And I couldn't ignore it anymore. It had a real 12 stops of dynamic range. Mm. Nobody had that. It had really incredible low light performance. And I always considered myself a film purist, certainly for like narrative production. Um, I didn't think there was anything that could eclipse film, and I was wrong. And it was very interesting, because this Mm. is 2006, and it was really early days, and most of the people out there had really no idea. My job, sort of as the business development for 4K rentals, was educating people on what 4K was and what exactly you know what exactly the future was, and Dalsa was heavily involved in all kinds of aspects regarding the infrastructure that was going to make 4K acceptable to uh, to the industry, to the world. And they'd been doing this. The sensor technology actually goes back. You know, we were, this is 2006, but the sensor was technically invented in like 99. They're so far ahead of like everything. Dalsa invented the sensor. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was actually invented. Um, at a request to, from NHK, which is the Japanese public television uh, service, mm-hmm. and they had made a call essentially for uh, companies to uh, to research and produce uh, 4K, and they thought this was going to be the future. And then when that project was over, they essentially said, you know what, we've decided 4K isn't what we're going to do. We're going to wait and have a standard based around 8K. So we're huh. just granting all of this technology back. And so Dalsa then was like, this is it was like wow. We okay, so we got this paid for. We now have this. Uh-huh. We should figure out a way to to utilize it, implement this in some sort of camera technology. Yeah, and so that that's kind of like how 4K was born. Well, so, where yeah. where did Dulce end up? So Dulce ended up uh, actually uh, really suffering a lot during the global financial crisis of 2008. Uh-huh. And at that point, we'd had a couple of big successes with the camera system. We had uh, James Bond Quantum of Solace for a very key sequence of the movie used uh, several of the Dulce 4K cameras. Cool. We also had uh, the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland movie shot about 50% of the movie all on the Dulce camera. And we had uh, a big Marvel project and a couple other things that were kind of circling to become the first all 4K 
you know, all 4K major studio film. We had some smaller ones. I met uh, LeVar Burton years ago because uh, technically his movie was the first. He made a movie called Reach For Me and it was the first movie all shot on the Dulce camera. There was a few others too that were into indie fare but not a lot of people got so what, attention. So why do you think that the red was the was the digital camera that emerged from this time period? And, and, well, it's, uh, yeah. it's did, did, were they born out of the financial crisis or well, how did that happen? No, red existed before the financial crisis, yeah. but Dalsa, Dalsa had an activist investor who essentially had bought up about twenty percent of the stock of the company, and when the crisis happens in you know uh, late September uh, two thousand eight. No one had ever heard the term credit default swap, mm. and no one really understood what was going on. And the Toronto Stock Exchange, where Dalsa had been traded, was um, was pretty depressed yeah. because uh, there was a lot of materials and mining companies there, and the orders for that stuff uh, ended or, or was way less compared to uh, housing and a lot of the other things, the raw materials that go into it. But nobody understood that Toronto's exchange was sort of the canary in the coal mine, and what happens is uh, the stock price falls even more, and then they, the activist investor makes uh, these proclamations to the board of directors for Dalsa that we have to concentrate on our core industry, we have to concentrate on our core businesses, get rid of extraneous uh, you know, growth plans like hmm. digital cinema, and I believe one other division also got closed. So myself and 40 other people all, all lost our jobs. And I had there's a one. A lot, there's a lot yeah. of pivoting in your, in yeah. your career path. Quite a bit. Just, I said it's circuitous. Yeah. yeah we, and I, I'll, I'll wrap this up. I feel like you know you should probably edit this way way down. No, this no, is no. Probably, I don't it's think probably I will. not I, interesting. I, I like all this. This is about okay. twenty minutes in. I love this. This is great. Okay. So so uh, when this happened, uh, actually, I got a phone call from my boss uh, in October. And I had a one-month-old son at home. I was on paternity leave, so I was kind of like blissfully unaware of any turmoil that was going on at the office. Mm -hmm. And my boss called me up and said, hey, it's the end of the quarter, something really important. Uh, we all just lost our jobs. Huh. So, <laughs> Something really important? <laughs> yeah. Oh no. And my wife is in the other room holding my infant son and she says to me, huh, um, I always thought that you would be working now and I would be mom, so what are you gonna do? Yeah. And then uh, I, basically had to figure it out. Um, a few days later, luckily, she got a phone call to go produce a, a television show for the Sundance Channel. And she said, I'm willing to take this job. It's a four month contract job. Uh, can you be Mr. Mom? And yeah. then when that is over, have a plan for like what we're gonna do for like, you know, the rest of our lives, like what we're gonna do. Uh -huh. And I said, sure, absolutely. So I became Mr. Mom for four months. And during that time, I had a little bit of inside information that the first ever mirrorless camera was gonna be release, released that had a not mirrorless. Yeah, it, they didn't call it mirrorless, oh, okay, but, yeah. but it was a technically a mirrorless camera. It was, oh. a, it was a Panasonic GH1, oh, and okay, yeah. it was the first camera that ever recorded a SMPTE format of HD. So it recorded 1920 by 1080, 23976, yeah. exactly the correct format, which was used by Blu-rays and digital cinema and everything else. And because of that, I knew that it, because I owned the G1, which was the previous camera, mm -hmm. it was a Micro Four Thirds camera, I knew it had a very short flange depth, and I had sort of played around with the idea of putting cinema lenses, PL mount lenses, on this camera to be able to use it as a director's finder, or a crash camera, or whatever it might be. But in this case, with the G1, I was just using it to mess around to take stills and to see how cinema lenses performed compared to still, still lenses. lenses. Yeah. So, um, because I knew that was coming out in early 2009, uh, I started Hot Rod Cameras, I built the world's first uh, PL mount adapter, and uh, 
basically got a buddy in Osaka to buy the camera and send it to me the day it came out <laughs> so that I could start... Before it came out in the U.S., yeah. Before it came out in the U.S. and uh, started messing around. Well, first of all, I had to learn Japanese because all the menus were in Japanese. There was no English version, and the English version wasn't going to come for, for a few months later. And a buddy of mine named Liam Fim wanted to make this movie uh, using a Canon 5D, which only shot 30 frames per second. And I was like, well, you know, if you wait a little bit, there's this other camera coming out that'll shoot real 24. And so that's kind of like how it all started to snowball. I went to NAB with a prototype. I showed it to a few people. I showed it to David Mullins. And I was like, if this camera could shoot 24 frames, if you know it was this small and you could put cinema lenses on it, would you use it as a director's finder or a crash cam? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And a few other people said that. And yeah. That's kind of how that's Hot so Red Camera was born. Yeah, I went back to my garage and uh, cleared out a bunch of space and started, you know, started working in, in earnest. Yeah. Why? Why was that a viable business uh, at that time? Did you think enough people were going to want to adapt these cameras to cinema? It wasn't a viable business. So, yeah. um, but I, I learned. I learned many years ago how to get my financial house in order and to live very frugally and to try to you know, make sure, like I, I really had to. I mean, when Dulce closed and uh, my wife got this, this temp job, I really had to, you know, we had to figure some things out. And um, it was very difficult to convince people that this was actually the way things were going to happen in the future and this was the future of production. This is how things were going to happen. I actually had a meeting with B&H Photo in uh, New York. They, uh, this, this guy who worked in one of their departments said, oh, you should come and meet our, our buyer. You should, you, know, you should have a chat with him. And uh, you know, I think he's really going to like this, and he's going to be really interested. And when I, when I went there, uh, they took me up to this you know, upstairs, and uh, this guy came in, and uh, I explained to him exactly what we were doing, showed him the prototype. And he said, you're trying to tell me that people are going to shoot movies or television with a little, camera, a little yeah. camera like this, he goes, you're crazy, it'll never happen. And he like walked out of the room, like no goodbye. Like that was like the end. And I was like, and the guy who invited me there was like, well, I'm really sorry, I guess that's a pass, you know? Uh, wow. Yeah. And uh, so- How did you make it? I don't understand, like, how did you know what the flange depth needed to be? Hey, obviously you were a camera tech, so you knew all this stuff, but how did you get these materials to well, make this little adapter well, from uh, uh, Micro Four Thirds to PL? Well, I, I actually uh, I have to give credit. I, got, I have to give some credit to you know the really some really really smart people. One of them is uh, Dan Sasaki, who mm. is the Panavision. Uh, you know, yeah. um, when I was at Dalsa, uh, there was a machine shop that um, that used to make all of uh, high ride. Uh, sorry, used to make all of. The, let me start this again. <laughs> when I was at Dalsa, there was a machine yeah. shop that made Dulce's accessories, okay. made like uh, base plates and dovetails and sure. things like that. Uh, I had a really good relationship with the guy who uh, ran that, that company and after Dulce closed down, I went to him and I said, hey look, I got this idea. Uh, at the time, Dan Sasaki was also working with him and I said, these are the pieces I need to go together. You've got a fantastic three-axis CNC machine here. I will buy these blocks of aluminum and I want to make this prototype. And so pretty much in about three months, we did a bunch of trial and error and figured out, because they didn't publish what the flange depth was of the uh, Micro Four Thirds camera, so we actually had to figure it figure out. Figure it out, so I had your friend ship it to you so you could do some measurements and That's exactly on. right. And it turned out that the G1 and the GH1 were slightly different, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, no. then, and then, so no, it's fine, but what yeah. we did, you know, one of the other things that we came up with, and it's interesting because I never got a patent. Had I got a patent, I probably would have had some, some protection because no one had ever done this before, but um, 
the earliest version of our of uh, our original PL mount, the Hot Rod PL, had the ability to shim, so you could adjust the flange mm -hmm. focus step, mm -hmm. so you could have accurate focus marks. All of our competitors that came out for years didn't have this function, but that was how we could separate ourselves. And for a period of time, the Hot Rod PL was the number one PL mount in the world, and all the best rental houses everywhere used it because you could put a real cinema lens on it, and you could have accurate focus marks. And we started getting uh, emails and photos sent into us from all over the world of people who were doing, like, I thought that people were gonna use it very, very sparingly for like very specific use cases, and it would eventually ramp its way up into bigger productions, uh, certainly as cameras got better. But quite a, right away, uh, there was a television series on Fox called Human Target. Uh, Robert McLaughlin, uh, ASC, CSC, who was the DP on that, he now, you know, famously shot Game of Thrones and all yeah. kinds of other things. Uh, he started sending me, he's like, hey, check out this, the, huh? check out the uh, the crash housing we built and check out these things. And he, he was sending me stuff. He's like, oh, it's totally making the show. And uh, cool. it started giving me a lot of uh, confidence that this could elevate into all kinds of different ways. So, yeah. and, and people would use it, you know, for all kinds of things. Yeah, so, um, so you've got this one thing. Yeah. How did that turn into a, a retail store? Okay, so um, it's interesting. We um, we invented several other products sort of along the way, lots of other hardware. We also did the first professional mods ever of the Canon 7D or 5D to put peel mounts on these you know these DSLRs. That's how I was introduced to Hot Rod. A, a lot of people were. It, yeah. it was a it was a, a popular product, and boy, tons of television shows, uh, Sundance Award winners, all these. A lot of people were using that. Mm -hmm. um, it's really difficult to always come up with something innovative that you know, the world and the industry and everyone, everyone wants from you. There is a lot of great manufacturers making really, really great products. And we had to pivot so that we weren't always having to reinvent the wheel. We weren't always having to come up with new stuff. So we started off in a 300 square foot room that was literally me at a desk and I would be like, you know, removing the mirrors from cameras and, you know, people would come in and, and visit me and say like, hey, uh, I'm here to buy a tripod or a set of lenses. And it was just me and I'd have to like Tetris out from this. It was kind of like a slightly better organized episode of that show, Hoarders. Okay, and, oh no. Um, yeah, but it was, it was very humble beginnings. It was a little room in Burbank, but uh, before I know, knew it, I had some of these manufacturers uh, talking to other manufacturers saying, I got this guy, he's in this little room and he's just killing it, selling all this stuff, like more than our distributor is, you know? It's like, when that started happening via word of mouth, uh, I had to get a bigger space because huh. I just, there was no room for me to actually run a business. So I hired my first employee um, and then by the end of the year, we moved to a much larger space in Hollywood and then uh, we grew several more people there. there. And then in around 2016, we moved to this space, which is now 7,000 square feet, and uh, there's 17 people who work for Hot Rod Cameras, and we're in our, our screening room, so. Yeah, no, it's fantastic, and I, it's, I mean, Hot Rod's been a, an invaluable player in, in uh, my career path as well, so oh, I appreciate well, you guys. Th and thank you for yeah. being such a great, great customer. I, I, I mean, it's, it's I, I, what I really love about what I do um, is my interaction with our clients, and we try to be like the best the best partner, the best you know way, we try to be the best partner we can to support what our clients are doing. And mm. it doesn't really matter if it's exactly inside of our wheelhouse. We almost always try to disconnect people and to give people good, highly competent technical advice to make sure that they can kind of go do whatever it is they can do. And if it means like, you know, 
connecting our customers with other customers so that they can make a good solid connection or they can solve each other's problems. That's kind of like what gets me out of bed in the morning. I love helping people. I love the fact that we get to be a great resource for uh, not only Hollywood, not only like, you know, big studio productions, but like uh, people of every level, every, yeah, sure. you know, professionals, aspiring professionals, uh, you kind of have to be in the know to find us. We're a speakeasy. We don't have a big sign out front. We're not like, you know, there's some other companies that's like, hey, it's all about come here and buy a you know a memory card for your GoPro. We take the, a, a very different approach. We're trying to be like, you know, everyone's best partner. I want to shift a little bit. I want to yeah. talk about, now, now that we're in the in the retail space, we're at Hot Rod, I want to yeah. talk about um, what, what advice you have on young filmmakers that maybe are starting out. Uh, talk to us about, equipment owning versus renting? Yeah, um, it's really interesting. I, uh, I just had a conversation with someone uh, maybe a month ago, mm. and uh, he wasn't a young filmmaker, he was an older filmmaker, but uh, this was new for him. This was a new sort of like life change career. And we spoke for about an hour on the phone, and um, when we were done, he says to me, he's like, you're like the Susie Orman of filmmaking equipment. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? what? Yeah. what? And, uh, uh, and, and uh, like, I know who Susie or Orman is because she's sort of like this, uh, you know, uh, financial advisor, consultant sort of thing. It's always like, you know, really telling people to get out of debt and tell people to get their finances in order. And uh, I guess the more equivalent today would be like a Dave Ramsey for the people who don't sure, know who yeah. Su Susie Orman is. But, uh, he, he asked me, he was, he was going through that dilemma that I think is probably the most common dilemma, at least most common by what I see out there in the world, which is um, what camera should I buy? Sure. Hey, I'm trying to get into this. What camera should I buy? I hate and, that question. And I hate that question now. I, I will tell you that like, my first answer is usually like, I'm not even sure that buying a camera is the right choice for you, so we should, we should talk about it. And I said to him, uh, when did you, you know, let's say you do buy a camera. When were you planning on selling this camera? And he's like, I haven't even bought it yet. Why are you asking me? Why are you asking me like when I'm going to sell when I'm going to sell this? And I said, "Well, you really have to start thinking about what you're going to invest in with the end in mind." And as as, I, as we shoot this podcast, I'm like Canon C100 that I bought like 9 years ago. But you know what? Yeah. It, it's still a great camera. It's still yeah. it's like to totally a functional camera and anyone who who sees this video will, will you know see how great the the C100 is. Yeah. But you know, yeah. okay, so and that's okay though. Like when you start with the end in mind, you might think, okay, well, I'm going to divest. You know, after a job, a lot of people are like, oh, I need to buy it for a job. Then I'm going to divest because you know I don't see myself needing this for the long term, but I need it for my immediate, my immediate, you know, immediate issue that you need to solve. Yes. Uh, sometimes it's a season. Sometimes people are like, well, this is the best thing I can get right now. And I'm going to plan on leveling up. I'm going to plan on upgrading. Or if something comes out to make this obsolete, I'm going to divest of it then. Other people, it's like, I love this. I'm going to have it for life. I know I'll always have a use or a purpose from this. And when you make that plan up front, it totally changes your financial decisions on so many other things, including what accessories you invest in. Is it going to be a whole ecosystem? Is it going to affect your workflow? There's so many other choices and things that happen once you decide, like, you know, I, you know, how long I'm going to have this, which way I'm going to go, you can start making really, really good decisions, including whether or not it's appropriate to rent. So quite often, it might be important for you to buy a particular portion of that puzzle, but then rent the rest of it, because you have to determine 
what your threshold for pain is and how quickly you need to be able to pivot to produce something or shoot something. Some people need to own all of it. They need to be ready at a moment's notice. They're a freelancer, they're an owner operator. They need to get on a plane, they need to go somewhere with their gear, they need to make it work. Other people, it's not like that. Other people, uh, they're producing their own stuff or they're working with an in-house corporation or they're working mm. with other people that have bring some elements to this but maybe they don't want to invest in every part of it so having a really great set of lenses or having maybe a camera body might be a perfect you know, might be a perfect situation depending on who it is or what it is they're doing also if you're working at some levels you should probably own nothing you yeah. should probably be renting 100% of your gear because it is for a project and having those assets depreciating assets over a period of time could be really negatively impact what you're doing. So totally. you you have to you have to understand the ramifications. And I will tell you that um, a lot of people, it's sort of willy nilly. They get into this like, hey, I want to buy a camera. I'm going to be a filmmaker, and then they have to kind of like backpedal. Like now I got this thing and it's sitting around and I'm not utilizing it. I'm not getting money from it. Do I sell it? Do I open up my own rental house? Do I <laughs> go to ShareGrid? What is yeah. what what is my plan? And I find that I talk, to, I talk to people at a lot of different stages sort of in their, their journey. And I talk to a lot of people uh, at this stage after they've already purchased something and it may not have necessarily been the right thing and they want some help to decide like what the next step is. Quite often it's sell, other times it's rent, other times it's trade-in or, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot of... So I'm, at that, I'm at that point in my career right now where it's like, you know, I've heard both arguments. I've heard the... You shouldn't own any gear at a certain level as a cinematographer. Do you know Todd Ben Hazel? Of course, yeah. He's yeah. been on our podcast. Yeah. Oh, perfect. So, yeah. so Todd, I I bought his uh, a lot of his gear as nice. he was kind of leveling up because so he had an Alexa Classic. Yeah. He had like a Saco Seven Plus Seven. That's a great hand. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. It's classic, you know. Yeah. But um, so I, I when I knew him, he was kind of like just phasing out of that period of owning, obviously high end gear like mm -hmm. uh, beautiful Alexa Classic at the time. That's oh, a great camera. Eight years ago, it was like you know, so everybody was still using it. And, Mm -hmm. And um, he got to the point though where it didn't make sense to mm -hmm. own a ton of equipment to to marry himself to a certain look. Mm -hmm. It's like so. So uh, that's my question right now. Like, at what point do maybe me specifically uh, do I start to say, you know what? Maybe I don't need to go buy this mm -hmm. brand new camera body. Maybe I'll just rent it. But I hate that. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I to me like probably seventy five percent of my income comes from rentals from different productions. Then. I would say it's actually really important that you keep owning gear because that, yeah. that is a huge revenue stream. And as soon as you cut that out, then you're gonna have to figure out how you're gonna replace that with more work. And when you are yourself trading your time for money, it's very difficult to, it's very difficult for you to supplement that other income that you, like, unless you can charge three times more for, for the work that you're doing. And I can't, So then, that's, that's the problem, So uh, right? I yeah. would say that, Look, it's important to have a, a very healthy relationship with your investments. Yeah. And at the end of the day, all of this stuff is just tools. You yeah. know, people have emotional connections to their cameras, to their filmmaking gear, sort of in the same way that people get emotionally connected to like their cars. But I'm, less, I'm yeah. less emotionally connected to cameras at this point. I've, yeah, got, it, I've, got, my, I've got my Alexa Mini LF, yeah. which I bought from you. Yeah. And, um, and it's just kind of, it works for me. I didn't need to jump on the Alexa 35 bandwagon when that came out. I said, I'm... Pretty heavily invested glass-wise in, in full frame, so I'm yeah, just yeah. gonna. So I've got my my signature primes. I've got my um, Cook 
Pink Rose. I've got Tsuchikina Vista Primes, which I adore. They're, they're fantastic. I adore. They're, they're so you were good. the first one to show me the... I know. Do, do you remember? It's like it was before this, the set of lenses even exist in the world. I think it was the Vista 1s, actually. It was like some variation of the Vista 1. It, yeah, but... Uh, Early on, I was involved in sort of the development process, talking with the optical engineer, and uh, those lenses have become the base. Uh, oh my God, the base for so many other people out there who. Even I, I, I did not say that. You didn't say No, no, no. It wasn't me. So no, <laughs> I, no, not at all. Uh, and <laughs> I, I would be careful about telling people that because you know. But although, yeah. although that company is famous for taking other companies' lenses, sure, and doing their own things to them. There's and, a lot of similar then, focal lengths for a lot of set, classic sets of lenses that you, yeah. you kind of go 19 to 90, huh? Interesting, yeah. Interesting. No, exactly. So yeah. it, it's. I won't say it's a dirty secret in this industry. People know that there is uh, certain donor lenses that go into a lot of things, and it's become a real trend with like certain lenses becoming, uh, you know, I want to say like the the blueprint for other work that comes out of it. Yeah. But Tokina Vistas are probably, and I, I don't mean to turn this into a Tokina Vista love fest here, but Let's it's like... Let's do. I've shot so many films okay. on these lenses. No, love, they're great. Yeah, no, shout out to Ryan and, uh, yeah, no, and everybody at Tokina. They're, yeah. they're, they're, so, they're so good. Um, Look, uh, the engineer is brilliant. He's he's a, he's a really really brilliant guy, and uh, they had a very long list of uh, criteria from uh, from Ryan and from other DPs, from myself. There's a, a handful of people in the industry, and then they went back and said, "How can we satisfy all this?" And uh, no, they they knocked it out of the park. They, they did, really did. They did a great job. So uh, I can't wait to see what they do next. And they keep coming up with new focal lengths and things. But Tokina is not a name that people associate with, like you know, high-end cinema, even though they are an an OEM for all levels of, of imaging systems out there, like uh, all kinds of stuff down to like, you know, small industrial systems, consumer cameras, uh, and of course in cinema. So because of that, uh, I expect, and because of what they're doing in cinema now, and you know, a lot of things, like the Loki season two is all shot on Vistas, and it's gorgeous. I've heard of it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think you'll see more and more as time goes by, Tokina is really gonna, gonna you know, yeah. continue. They, keep killing it like this. So, so, so my, my point is where I'm at right now is like the camera body works. Yeah. I, I like Ari. I like the, I it, like the way it looks. It's incredible. Yeah. It's a great look for me. I, I know it's like the back of my hand, the exposure uh, limitations, and, and I, can, I can just work on it very quickly, very easily. I like the images. What I'm interested in right now is glass. Mm. And, and for me, like the idea was if I could just buy a new set of lenses maybe once a year and do that for 10 years, 20 years or whatever, and just like consign them in different rental houses and let, just kind of let that be my retirement essentially if I, mm. if I ever wanted to you know take a break uh, it's we had a very interesting last couple of years yeah yeah in particular um, 2023 especially 2023 oh, was a really year. rough year yeah. yeah and it not just for you not just for me for everyone it was an yep. existential crisis that was the only thing that yeah. got me through it was that I wasn't suffering alone you yeah, know what yeah. I mean oh no like, a lot of people yeah. and, and the uh, the recovery was not instantaneous. I mean, uh -huh. there was this. I want to say like recovery. What recovery? Exactly. The recovery is not instantaneous. Yeah. Like there, I've I've had people say like, oh well, strikes over. You're like right back to work, and it's <laughs> like, no, that's not. That's not exactly what you know. The existential crisis of the strikes and not knowing where your next paycheck was going to come from. 
even people who could afford to spend money decided I should not spend money on anything right totally. now. We should hunker down. It, in a lot of ways, it was similar to the time period of uh, the early days of COVID, but there's no government assistance for businesses or individuals. We're not getting, in, we're not getting six grand a month in assistance right now. No, it, it was. exactly. It was, and yeah. there was a perception that, um, you know, oh, everyone who works in, in Hollywood or works in entertainment is a millionaire. So I'm <laughs> like, is, yeah, no, and that's that's yeah. totally not the case. It's um, it's really, really tough when, um, you know, the high end of the industry set, has a complete work stoppage. Everything else down, Gavin Newsom says that $6 billion came into the California economy during this six month, seven month strike, which is basically a billion dollars a month. And that's not just affecting not just affecting people directly in the industry, but all the people around it too. It's like, I know it's, restaurants I, we have, that are We have a, a, a neighbor friend um, that uh, does pest control. Mm-hmm. And one of his biggest clients was Paramount. Yeah, oh yeah. And they shut down yeah. as soon as the strikes happened. And he lost for, you know, four months or whatever it was, uh, his, his biggest client took a huge chunk out of his, his annual paycheck. You know, someone that's completely as far removed from the entertainment industry as you could possibly imagine is feeling the ramifications of what happened. There's a barbecue restaurant I like to go to in Studio City, and they told me that they lost about 60, 70% of their catering jobs when uh, the strike went, went on. The, um, the ripples are, are very loud. I think we don't even understand the ripples. I agree. Uh, I actually met with a, a previs company, a company who is like usually hired very early on in, in a production, and their biggest clients are Marvel and Disney. Mm. And they were like, what we do kind of like kickstarts, kind of kicks off like the whole process, and they're like, we saw our revenues fall like insane just from two clients. Two clients, you know, they they pivoted to starting to do previs for architecture. They are, oh. I know it's like they they had to. They, and that's they, and that's the issue I have too. It's just like, you know, I started getting all the phone calls probably March last year. Hey, we're gonna push that that big film. You know, it's like I had a I had a four million dollar film in South Africa and a seven million dollar film in, in Utah, and both pushed obviously because of the impending strike. The problem is. That was independent funding for both mm. of those films. Yeah. Do you think that that four and seven million dollars is just going to hang out and wait for the strikes to end? Definitely not. No, of course not. Yeah. It's like, so that's gone. Yeah. So those projects are gone, and that's and that's the tragedy for me. Is that it's like that. It's I'm going to feel that strike for years. Um, I think we all are. I yeah. think that it's uh, it's going to be a slow recovery and. Um, I really hope that it happens sooner than later, but there's been a lot of constricting on the streaming services too. Yeah. You know, the business model has been revealed that unless you were Netflix, you probably weren't making money. And Even all, Netflix though. Yeah, and all these companies decided, oh, we gotta be competitive, we gotta jump to this market when the business model is still, you know, kind of being figured out and trying to figure out how you, you make a bucket it. So I think everyone's prices are gonna go up. I think everyone's streaming service bill's gonna, gonna get higher and uh, there's gonna be more consolidation. I think there's, it's gonna have to be. It's gonna which be a is, really interesting time to see what happens. Which means less, less, demand, less uh, uh, movie being made. Yeah, and less buyers for, the, for yep. independent products. Uh, and independent projects and really it's gonna be, yeah, it, it will be um, interesting. They it say, will be interesting. Yeah, yeah, it will unstable, I think. For, so it's, it's, for me, it's that idea of pivoting, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and I was having this conversation with my cousin the other day, it's like, is this a, a time for pivot? And I don't know the answer. And I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I still don't know. I, I'm, I'm hoping that things kind of come back a little bit, enough, enough where it's just stable. 
I think we'll get there. Yeah. I just think it's going to take a couple of months. Yeah. I think that um, we'll, you know, get back to get back to me, <laughs> get back to me around <laughs> April. So we'll we'll see we'll see where we're at. But um, yeah, I know, I know. Usually, usually January, February are notoriously slow. But uh, January has always been a slow month. Yeah. But the strikes made it way worse. Uh, I, I mm. would really like to see more normalcy return in February. I think that 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 will we'll, we'll see. But if it kind of keeps building, I mean, we were really going strong in the spring of last year. Basically up until the strike, it was, it was you know, started off like probably our best year ever, but then it was like- really? Yeah, then the breaks. Even with high interest rates. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And uh, huh. there's, there's some incentive programs out there too where you can combat some of those high interest rates. So, mm. but it's, uh, you know, and, and actually I'm really glad you bring that up because um, I think that a lot of people actually don't understand financing for equipment really at all. And yeah. it, it's not until you really get your feet wet and really kind of get, get into that, does it start to, I think, really make sense when it becomes practical. But yes, high interest rates, I actually don't think that matters too much if you are bringing in so much income from the stuff that you're doing and that you can pay off your your debt for, you know, your, your debt financing. If you can pay it off quickly, that interest rate is doesn't, do, doesn't really matter. Yeah. I think with camera bodies, if you're shooting a lot, then it, it, it maybe is, is easy to do. Lenses is a long game. Lenses is a long game. So it's a different, so it's a very different yeah. story. So what works for a, something that is hot and has a lot of demand and you can keep high utilization, keep it working all the time, interest rates are less important. Stuff that's gonna yeah. be a long-term investment that you're not gonna make a lot of money back on right away, that's a different story. If you're paying a high interest rate for that for a long term, then you might wanna look into refinancing. You might wanna look into other things to try to keep that, um, yeah, to keep that that cost as low as possible. Yeah. yeah. yeah so when you when you bring up like um, you know owning a few sets of, of lenses and not having uh, cameras, you know, <laughs> it's, do I need the thirty five? The thirty five is the last thing I need right now. I, I don't think anyone really needs it at this moment, but I have a feeling that's going to change, and I really think that that is going to be the dominant standard. And I don't think that Super thirty five is going away. No, I don't think so. But I do think that lenses will all pretty much exist in a full frame world, and I think there'll be a lot of bodies that are super 35. I think that's sort of like where we're, we're heading towards. You get to shoot through the nicest part of the glass when you use a full frame lens on a super 35 body. It's true, so. this is true. The least barrel distortion, it's the nicest part. Of, you're, you're absolutely yep, right. Yep. So that's, and that's what Ari would say about the um, Signature Primes for sure. My, my gripe with the Signature Primes is the LPL. Oh, really? It is. Okay. It's the LPL. I really think that that is the format of the future. I really think LPL oh, is like... I gonna... mean, Ari's, Ari's not been wrong too too often. But, no, uh, and I, I don't think they're wrong in this. I mean, Leica has also jumped into it, or Lights uh -huh. now, and uh, those lenses are gorgeous. A couple of like smaller manufacturers are talking about making LPL versions of, of lenses. It's like... I really think it's going to happen. I do. I just, I just think it's, it's like B-mount. B-mount is also a great format too for, for batteries, but mm -hmm. you know, it's gonna take people some time. And Aerie's in this for the long game. Aerie does not dabble. They don't like, oh, we're also in reality television or we're also right. in like yeah. lower end products. We're out in this. They are cinema. They have, Aerie has said, we are cinema. This is what we're doing. Uh -huh. And when Aerie kind of goes a direction, is it can be very difficult to swim upstream from that, from a standard. PL mount is a standard for a reason. It'll continue to be a standard. And they were very smart in their LPL to PL module, their, their adapter, which allows you to, you know, work seamlessly with, with you know, 50 years now of lenses or 40 something years of lenses. Yeah. So, but I believe because you're going to be able to have smaller lenses, lighter lenses, and less expensive high quality lenses in an LPL, 
Yeah, it's going to be hard to bet against that format. Oof. So sorry. All right, hey, but, you know I, what? but I think the signature primes are amazing. I think the yeah, signature zooms are like you know these are incredible and like some of the best lenses in the world right now. And I think that you you own them. So I uh -huh. think that you are going to be really really well set with those lenses for a long period for of time. a long long time. Yeah, so I agree with that. Now it's a long game. It is. Like it's a say, long it's game. Like, yeah, because they you know they don't go out as much and it's a you know all in it was like 240 grand for that no it's, it's it's major so it's a, it was a large large long-term investment they are paid off by the way just, oh just, congratulations thank you very much no that's um, that's huge that's like you know yeah. uh it's all gravy then from this point it's so, all gravy so so and yeah. you know and i think that's kind of what's wonderful about your podcast because it it i think gives very practical information to people who want to understand the reality of this because it wasn't that way i'm sure for quite a while and then yeah. you were kind of like I'm paying money, and these are sitting in my garage, or these are sitting at a rental house, or these are sitting where, whatever oh, the situation was is. Last year, <laughs> yeah. So La uh, last year was tough, man. <laughs> so, I, it was the pink rose for me. Mm. It was just like because that's that that monthly payment's like what twenty four hundred dollars a month or something like no, that. No, it's it's really painful. And you, uh, and most of the time, I get that. Most yeah. of the time, I get twenty four hundred dollars a month from consignment. And you have a very smart head for doing this and how to maximize your income from the assets that you own. I talk about payback calculators to clients sometimes and people who call me on the phone and say like, hey, I wanna talk about buying this. And they, it's, it's a word they haven't even like, they've never come across it and I have to explain like, you know, it's pretty easy to do. If you have Excel, a yeah. lot of people do, or even like, you know, Google Sheets, you can make a payback calculator to figure out how much it costs you for this asset that you're buying and calculating the actual total costs, including tax, including insurance, including all that stuff. And then, how often do you think you're actually going to be renting that per month in order to then pay back that initial investment? Not only renting it, but how often are you using it as a tool? Utilization, and, and that's, yeah. And that's, for me, it's like I loved the, because I had the Tokita Vista Primes, I had the, the Signature Primes, which are very clean. Mm. I think very beautiful, very clean lenses, and I wanted something with a little bit more flavor. And that's that's why I got the full-frame Pancros. They're great. Because yeah. um, they, they've got a, the, the cook softness that everybody talks about, and then that classic... Mm. Uh, Pancro look. Yeah. Um, so, so for me, it was like, yes, I can make money on this as a rental item, but I can also use this as a tool. Yes. For pitching and, projects. And yeah. and you've formed your business around you being an owner operator and having access to all this, and then making all that extra income as well from from the gear that you bring to the job. And that is a super viable, you know, career choice. That's a super mm -hmm. viable way for you to separate yourself from a lot of other people out there who don't have access to those those assets. So. I know that it might be tempting to try to uh, <laughs> divest of a bunch of gear and not have to deal with the hassles of ownership, the cost of ownership, the insurance, and just you know all the unpredictability that can co come from that. But at the same time, if that those items are paid off, if that income is now, if you're getting you know income coming into your bank account from it, you have to figure out what that that trade off is. When people reach a certain level, they are able to charge three times, four times. They they're not subject to union you know minimums. They're, sure. they're writing they're they're writing their own ticket. They have a quote that the production wants to work with them. They pay a certain amount, and then sure, it makes sense to maybe not necessarily own gear. I will tell you that at the highest levels of the industry, it is fewer and fewer people who have large equipment. collections of, uh, of equipment. Equipment. Yeah. People at the bottom end of the industry also as well too. Not a lot of equipment. It is a 
is a lot of people sort of in this like you know middle tier, which is a which is a lot of people who are the people who found how to make an income off of tools. And uh, it's the same as contractors, the same as like long haul truck drivers. People have these tools that they are able to then utilize to you know have an income. And I think it's it's brilliant. A lot yeah. of people don't necessarily even understand that they are a business when they buy a camera or that they are not just a filmmaker that you know they are actually a, a business person if they if they realize that they'd be able to i think better uh you know start treating like you know their career as a look uh, i'm gonna take two, i'm taking <laughs> yeah, yeah. two steps back here because uh, what i really want to say is there there's been times where a camera has come out and the way that they're marketed, it's caught fire. I, I want to say the original red one was like this. All these people who are not businesses, who are just, you know, Joe Blow person wanted to, wanted to own a camera. They bought a camera, they put it on their mantle, they put it under their bed, they, they, they pulled it out a couple of times, they used it. They were probably not actually the real target demographic for whatever, for, for the camera. That happens all the time. People get like gear lust and they decide that they, yeah. they, they want to have something. But if they just started from the concept of like, if I buy this now I'm a business and how do I utilize this properly? I think that people would get, make way better decisions and they would also get way more profit out of their gear. Hmm. Yeah, and they would also then not get taken to the cleaners when they held onto it way too long and then didn't divest at the right time. True. Yeah. Well, Ilya, I, I think this is it. Oh, okay, great. I think we made it. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, is, there anything, is there any other, maybe just one piece of advice you have for young creatives uh, starting out? Ah, advice for young creatives starting out. Uh, make sure you get a good team, make sure you get good partners, make sure you talk to a lot of people and understand exactly what you're getting into. Don't spend money recklessly. Mm -hmm. It's really important to have your financial house in order so that when you do make appropriate choices on gear, either you know purchasing or rental, that uh, you get to maximize the value. I think value is, is really the thing that people should be looking at. I think a lot of people look at the very top end of the industry and that may be not something they can afford and they have gear lust, but understanding what the maximum return of quality you can get per dollar you can spend. And for some people that might be a very introductory level thing. For a lot of people it'll be so, somewhere in the middle. And then for a few it'll be at the high end, but understanding that value and you know having a good team, talking to a very competent retailer like Hot Rod or talking to, uh, you know, people who've been around who've bought tens of millions of dollars worth of gear and sold tens of millions of dollars worth of gear, those are the people who understand really well what, you know, what the value is and how you're not gonna, are not gonna harm yourself. Not gonna harm yourself, yeah. I agree. Thank you so much, man, I appreciate your time. Yeah, it was fun. I'm so glad that you, you called me up. This is yeah. great. Perfect. Thank you everybody for sticking around to the very end. Um, what a fantastic episode, what a fantastic show. If any of you are, are thinking about or on the fence about investing in any equipment for your industry, whatever that may be. Hopefully this uh, gave you a little bit of insight and a little a bit of knowledge towards the towards whatever it is you do. Um, share the podcast, everybody. We get, uh, to be transparent, about 3,000 downloads a month right now. My goal is by the end of the year to be at 10,000, um, which I think is a very achievable goal uh, if I'm consistent and I, I will be consistent. That is my promise to you. Um, but I also need your help to spread the word, uh, to chat with your, your friends about it. Uh, social media is a great platform um, for these sorts of things. If you have, let's say, 800 followers and you share a podcast, 800, and even 3% of that audience converts, I mean, that's, what is that, like 25 people, 28 people? Um, and that helps. If everybody does that, I think it, it helps quite tremendously. So let's, uh, 
let's be conscious of that. If you're getting something out of it, go ahead and share it with your world. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.